Welcome to episode 68 of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I'm joined by Ryan from Reef Restoration Foundation, which is a not-for-profit organization up in Cairns, Fitzroy Island, and all around there, which works to outplant corals to help strengthen the resilience of the Great Barrier Reef. Now, these guys are an organization I have worked with and followed since 2016, 17, back in the day. And they were one of the first places I volunteered. And it's been amazing to see their growth and the amount of volunteers and dedication working together to improve the health of the Great Barrier Reef. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And let me know if you have any questions. Of course, head over to Reef Restoration Foundation to learn more about the exact work they're doing or how you can potentially get involved. I hope you guys enjoy this episode and here we go. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. All right, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I'm here with the CEO of Reef Restoration Foundation on the Great Barrier Reef, Brian Donnelly. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Kat. I'm so thrilled to finally have you on board to be able to talk to us a little bit about the amazing work you're doing up in Cairns. Well, yeah, and it's uh, it's an exciting bit of work, and um, yeah, we're we're on an exciting trajectory. Um, you know, we're making a bit of a difference at the sites where we're working, but you know, we understand that the water will continue to warm, so the the greater challenges lie ahead. So the key is to uh, keep crossing thresholds, and that's what we're doing. Of course. Before we dive into what the plans are into the future, let's go back a little bit to where you started. Could you tell me a bit about the journey um, to make reef restoration what it is today? Well, reef restoration as a discipline has been around for probably 30 years, um, and it's been in response to things like dynamite fishing uh, and to rebuild reefs, um, more so in the current context. um, The idea is that um, in Indonesia, there was dynamite fishing in, in places where uh, local people were catching fish to service um, a, a cat food market, of all things. And so the proprietor of that cat food uh, wanted to put back into those communities, so started to look at methods for rebuilding coral reefs. Uh, that's a little bit different to what we do here 30 years later. Um, Reef restoration or any sort of intervention on the Great Barrier Reef wasn't permitted until 2017. And then the policy was that, you know, when there'd been a, a, a major cyclone or a ship grounding or, you know, coastal flooding or, you know, in, in the modern context, a mass coral bleaching event, um, because that is a modern phenomenon, then they would just keep people, the Marine Park Authority would just keep people away from those, those areas and let nature take its course. Well, 
Of course, these days we've got more frequent, large, destructive cyclones, not more cyclones, but more of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, uh, coral bleaching is becoming a thing that's getting more frequent and uh, larger in scale and, and more intense. Um, and that's caused a fair bit of alarm. And, and so that the law was changed to allow for some sort of intervention. We'd formed as an organisation after the, the 2016 uh, mass coral bleaching event <clears throat> and we're ready to go uh, when the when the rules were changed in 2017. So we were able to get the first permit and install the first coral nursery on the Great Barrier Reef in December 2017 at Fitzroy Island. So that's where it all began. Um, since then, um, other people have, uh, have got permits and are using different methods. We've had the pandemic, of course, and the government has thrown some stimulus money at uh, uh, you know, parts of the tourism industry to retain staff, but on the condition that they run a program of uh, site stewardship. And nine times out of 10, they've gone for a, a, a reef restoration program. But um, we're the only organisation that's formed specifically to do it, and it's our core business. Uh, we don't do anything else. So mm-hmm. we're not aligned to any um, you know, major benefactor. We're not aligned to a, a, any businesses and we don't receive any government funding. So we're, we're a, a true grassroots community-based organisation committed wholly and solely to reef restoration. So that's probably what's, what separates us and um, that's what's got us to where we are today with a groundswell of support from communities near and far, which is, um, which is really important, I think, because that, that gives you a fair degree of gravitas and the fact that we're, uh, it's our core business means that we're, we're committed to continual improvement and we mark off our progress and we can, we can see where we're going because we know where we've been, as they say. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I found you guys back in 2018, I think now, and I got the chance to come out to Fitzroy and actually see some of your coral nurseries back at, you know, the, the initial stages where I think you only had five trees back then. We had, we had six in 2018 six. we had six and mm-hmm. uh, we we moved that initial nursery because it was um, not a convenient place to, to get to so we moved it into welcome bay uh, we've now got 30 trees there and another 10 at hastings reef and another 10 at moore reef and there'll be another 10 going in mid-december this year so we've we've shown quite considerable growth over the last couple of years or more and the team is now on full time. Uh, we've got some volunteers that have been with us for you know multiple years, and they know that they know the role backwards. So we're 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 maturing nicely, um, generating the the strategic partnerships with the Australian Institute of Marine Science, um, local Indigenous groups, other other practitioners here in the region, and um, yeah, things that. Things are falling into place quite nicely for the future, which is uh, going to be built on partnerships even more so than it has been today. Before we dive more into that, could you tell the people who are not quite sure what a coral nursery looks like, what we're talking about when we mention trees and, you know, your little sites that you've organised? There's a, a method that was developed in the Florida Keys using what's known as tree frames, but what they are really is a, a two metre long piece of um, polypipe with 20 cross members on it and each one of those cross members holds five uh, coral pieces on a, on a piece of fishing line effectively and mm-hmm. it's anchored into the bottom at, at about 14 or 15 metres and there's a, 
uh, polystyrene float at the top of it, and that holds it upright in the water column. Now, the, the purpose of being in the water column is you're away from, the corals are away from uh, parasites in the substrate, they're away from predators, and they're away from competitors, right? So they, they got a free run at, at, mm-hmm. um, at healing and, and growing, and the research has shown that they grow up to several times faster than they do on the reef. But what we do is we, we collect corals that have become loose from the reef through wave action, and those corals won't uh, continue to grow and they, they won't reproduce. So we collect those corals and we cut them up using a coral saw in the little finger-sized pieces, and then we put them on the, the coral tree for as long as it takes to heal them from where the cuts were and then get them healthy and nice and vital. And then we plant them back on onto the reef. And that's typically after about four months. And then we plant them strategically in uh, genotype clusters so that they'll grow together and fuse. The idea is that in the first instance, we achieve structurally complex habitat, to bring the critters in. And the longer term view is that we, we look after those corals to the point where they're reproductively viable and will contribute to regeneration as nature intended through spawning. So if we can can use 10 little coral pieces um, planted in a genotype cluster um, and fast track the process to habitat and then onto reproductively viable mature colony, then um, that will complete the cycle. We'll have taken a nil return coral and potentially produce, well, we'll produce millions of egg and sperm bundles from that, you know, however many corals uh, survive the, the background mortality at the early part of the life cycle. You've only got to add one and it's a gain. In terms of where you plant them out on the coral reefs, how do you pick which areas you plant your, well, little outplanting coral babies? Right at, right at the moment, we're looking for hard substrate, areas of hard substrate that have been degraded, either through, well, degraded by coral bleaching or or you know, smashed up by um, cyclones. Generally speaking, we're looking for some existing reef structure. You know, so it's, we're not out planting in a desert. But um, I think in the future we probably won't be doing this because there's a fair bit of labour-intensive uh, nature to it. And you know, when you when a coral larvae is looking for a place to settle, they're actually looking for that, that hard substrate. So we're using the method that we're mm-hmm. we're in at the moment on the trajectory that we're on to get really good at, understand thoroughly all the principles involved um, because in the, in the future there's more and more uh, technology is passing through proof of concept stage in the big budget uh, research and development programs at the likes of Australian Institute of Marine Science, then you know, we're able to adapt and um, upscale from there. So it's pretty it's an important trajectory to be on and we've just got to keep crossing the, the thresholds that we've been crossing. And, you know, we've recently crossed an important one where the, the early outplants that you would have seen back from 2018 at Fitzroy Island have spawned. So that cycle has been has been achieved. So that, that gives us great confidence to, you know, to move forward. So we're really energised by that. It's It's amazing to see the whole cycle then from, you know, finding these broken fragments or you know 
coral that wasn't going to reproduce naturally to then planting them on the trees or attaching them to the trees, seeing them grow until they're at a size where we can outplant them. And now they're spawning and contributing back to the natural ecosystems. That's yeah, that's a great success. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yes, it's, it's very rewarding. And I think um, it's rewarding on, on, on various levels because it, it does mean that even at the site stewardship scale in which we operate, that you can you can make a difference, even though the Great Barrier Reef is uh, something that spans 14 degrees of latitude. So in the grander scheme of things, that in itself doesn't make a huge difference. But as a proof of concept goes, it, it, it's an enormous threshold to cross. And so now you look at, okay, how can we scale that up so that we're, we're doing that, but we're, we're doing it more frequently, more of them mm -hmm. on an annual basis. How can we collaborate with people that have got a big budget for research and development and then work with them to, to deploy that technology as it's developed? And this is all part of the, the broader looking into, looking into the future um, who we work with and how we can play a, a role in the grander scheme of, of reef restoration on the Great Barrier Reef. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. This episode is actually sponsored by Reef Rebellion. 10% of proceeds go to Reef Restoration Foundation. They are gorgeous, 100% organic cotton t-shirts, which feature four iconic marine species. We have the crayfish, we have the red emperor, the coral trout, and my personal favorite, the sailfish. These gorgeous t-shirts long sleeve shirts and crop tops are perfect for the boat, for the beach, or if you want to take them to the pub or a restaurant. They are stylish, comfortable, and of course, they're supporting the regeneration of our reef. So head on over to reefrebellion.com to get yourself a shirt or two. You can get a 10% discount by saying Ocean Pancake 10 in the discount code. So Ocean Pancake 10 for a 10% discount for Reef Rebellion to support our reef restoration. Back to the episode. Well, you guys have been at the forefront of this in Australia, which is pretty impressive. Um, and I always loved the meaning behind your logo, which was the many hands, you know, joined together is what will make a difference. Uh, and it's great to see. So now you must have so many volunteers and full-time staff, which is incredible. Um, are you still opened up to volunteers potentially joining you or are you all full up now? <laughs> oh, no. Um, well, we're, we're always looking for volunteers. And I guess the um, the model is the same. We've, we've actually done a bit of work with the logo. The, the, the principle is still there with the many hands, but mm -hmm. we've got a much greater emphasis on the spawning. We kind of mm -hmm. released the logo just in time for the spawning at, at Fitzroy Island, so it's auspicious. We had, um, like like anything <laughs> else that you uh, the law catches up with it. So workplace health and safety don't mm -hmm. cater, in the current legislation don't cater for what we do. So we uh, the activity got shoehorned into an existing definition in the regulations, and that that comes at a cost for um, uh, for the volunteers. So they now need to be occupational divers, which comes at a, comes with an occupational dive medical. And we, in fact, lost half of our volunteers overnight. But we're building those mm. numbers back up. And uh, it just means that the volunteers that we get now um, are in it for the, for the longer haul. 
they they bring a lot of pre-existing expertise, uh, diving experience, and some of them have previously worked in the dive industry, but are now, you know, uh, working as you know their teachers or they're you know working in offices and so on, and they they don't want to pay large sums of money to go out diving, so they they still love it, um, but they get the opportunity to come out with us, uh, do mm-hmm. something that's um, you know rewarding. And it, it satisfies their need to be underwater. Yeah. I mean, that sounds exactly like me. I worked in scuba diving for eight years and now I'm a high school teacher of science. <laughs> uh, yeah. I do definitely hope to maybe one day go and see the progress you guys have made because that sounds, you know, so inspirational that you now have over 40 trees and that you, was that the number you were telling me earlier that you've outplanted yeah, now over a million Corals? No, no, we got, we've got, we've got, we've got fifty trees. Um, by the end of the year, we'll have sixty. It's, it's interesting when it comes to a metric. The the number of corals is kind of just mm-hmm. an output. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, like, I like to think more in outcomes, and so you know, I, I like to look at it in terms of um, uh, increased coral cover for uh, structurally complex habitat mm-hmm. and the number of spawn. Corals, they're a far more meaningful metric. The, the million corals thing that was that is true. That was um, that was used when we first started. In, included the use of various uh, different methods, including coral IVF, where you where you collect the the um, the egg and sperm slick, and you fertilize them in in captivity, and then you um, release you hang on to them while they they go through a, a a period where they're ready to um, disperse and, and find somewhere to live, but as a as a catchphrase, it, it then requires a an explanation. So it's not a very good catchphrase. So I, I got rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coral IVF does sound pretty cool, though, when you think about it. And I don't think many people think about coral something that has an egg and sperm. You know, it's still yeah. misunderstood in a lot of people's views as a plant while um, it's actually a lot more complex than that. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the biology of. It's, it's an, it's an animal and it, it can, it can reproduce asexually, which is means it just clones itself. And mostly these are the, mostly these are the small stonies and they're at the, the, the pioneer end of the spectrum as life history strategists go. So these are the, the first ones to get knocked over in a in a disturbance event, but they're the first ones to rebuild afterwards because they're they're fast growing and highly fecund. Um, they're reef building. Um, they they produce a lot of calcium carbonate and a lot of uh, structural complexity, and you'll see them in the branching and plating varieties. So they create a lot of habitat. Then you got then you got and they also um, reproduce sexually. So there's there's other species at the upper end of that spectrum that are largely the larger polyp stonies, and these primarily produce mm-hmm. uh, sexually. So they they need the fertilization of an egg from sperm. So and they're, they're specialists, right? So they 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 got limited functional redundancy in the environment, and they have specialist relationships with a, a bunch of other species, including vertebrates and invertebrates and and other corals. So they're they're the ones we most certainly don't want to lose. And, it's, and they're one of the reasons why we, we do assisted mm-hmm. reef recovery because they, as the 
frequency of disturbance increases, the, the window for recovery in between those events decreases. So if you're going to lose biodiversity, you're going to lose it at the end of that life history spectrum where the slow-growing species are and the, the specialists. So it's all, biodiversity is what the challenge is all about. But getting back to your reproduction, that everything's mm-hmm. stacked against reproductive success because the, the the eggs float and the sperm sinks. All right, so there's this narrow window of opportunity for fertilisation. And in amongst all of that, everything comes in to feed on the on the on the the spawn slick. So in amongst that there will be mm-hmm. a level of uh fertilization success. But there's also a lot of uh, background mortality through predation. And when there is uh, fertilisation success, they go off onto a pelagic phase, and uh, which which could be mm-hmm. three or four days until they're found somewhere to settle. So in that pelagic phase, there's also a high level of predation. And then when they, they go to settle on the reef, they, there's more predation, but then there's... Um, there's competition and more predation. So the chances of making your way through from uh, a gamut, for, uh, an egg and sperm bundle that's come out on the, in the you know the first few days after the full moon in October, November, December, whatever, then um, a little bit like the, the journey of the of a of a human through to being an actual baby. Yeah. Then. Uh, yeah, you've won the lottery of life to get to that point, which means you should never take a day of your life for granted because you've been through one hell of a journey to get to get to being a living, breathing thing. And corals are the same. Oh, that's a very good piece of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and we should therefore never take any piece of coral for granted because it's pretty amazing that I actually managed to root and grow there. Uh, is, exactly. Is this, in terms of the spawning um that happens is this why it happens once a year or all the coral you know does it at the same time to try and minimize the predation of it uh, maximize success yeah a lot of fish species do it as well they, they aggregate to spawn um it's it's all about maximizing the chances of success and there's there's a, a bunch of cues you know the lunar phase the the temperature of the water there's, there's a number of salinity, mm-hmm. I believe, is another one. Um, so when when these these things line up, um, that's when it all happens. Has it already happened this year? Inshore reefs, we had soft coral spawning on on inshore reefs, but the, the full moon in October mm-hmm. uh, was quite early in the month. Um, we opened up uh, some of the, the corals that were. Um, had been on our nurseries and some of the others that had grown, just grown naturally, and there were you could see that they were gravid. So anything that didn't spawn in October because it was a little bit early, so the water temperature was a little bit low, um, will spawn mm-hmm. in November. The midshells go off anyway. So an exciting time. This is the this oh, is the regenerative time of year, so it's it's a, it's a good time. Yeah, now is the chance for you to really see you know the corals that you guys have planted. Um, out there spawning so do you do you head out there to film it or to have a look uh, in the night when it occurs yes yep 
So we had a, had a team out there last week or the week before, whenever it was, and we will be out there again in, uh, I think it's mid-November, something like that. So that'll be good. Yeah, we'll, we'll document all that. And um, we live, the resources we live on come from uh, donations and, and sponsorships. So it's for us to be able to go back to the people who are, who are uh, keeping us going and say, this is what, mm-hmm. this is what your generosity has uh, contributed to, that there may be other corals, you know, spawning on that reef, but the ones that, that you participated in uh, were, were not going to be reproductively viable. We've taken those corals on a journey and we've made them reproductively viable. So from a, a nil return, we're going to see the natural process of reef regeneration occur and that that gives them, uh, you know, the, the type of justification they need to make to be spent on the money they do on us. And, you know, it's, very, it's great for us to go back and, and to be able to give them that news. It's very, that, that's very rewarding in its own right. You were saying that biodiversity is kind of one of the keys. So in terms of the corals that you do uh, choose to, you know, help regenerate, do you choose particular species or is it only certain species? Or could you tell us a bit more about that selection process? We use, we use corals of opportunity, which are the ones that are not going, these are the ones that are broken either free or loose of, of from the mm-hmm. reef. So these are the ones we call a, a nil return. They're, they're, they're just going to go into senescence. They're typically the, the species down the, the pioneer end of the, of the spectrum. So they're typically from the Acroporidae family, but not necessarily. It, it, it just all depends on what sort of the standing stock biomass is at the reef we're working on. Now, right at, right at the moment, the the northern end of the Great Barrier, or well, northern half of the Great Barrier Reef, which is quite a large area, hasn't seen a, a major disturbance event since 2017. And Cyclone Debbie traversed mm-hmm. uh, diagonally across the reef and made landfall at uh, the Sundays. Um, and, of course, we had the, the bleaching events in 16 and 17. But there's been now a five-year period where uh, there's been recovery. So the pioneer species are springing back in shallow water. And these are the you know the branching and plating varieties, generally speaking, from um, Acroporidae and Psilloporidae families. Um, still, uh, in in deeper water, there's there's lots of areas uh, that will take longer to regenerate. It's not supporting uh, the level of biodiversity that a, that a fully mature reef does. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. fantastic to see it spring back like this. But we need to temper our excitement a little bit because if we do, um, the lived experience, of course, is that you know we we're going to see warm water. Um, the warm water might manifest in a cyclone or it might manifest in in bleaching. So, as encouraging as it is to see it come back, uh, we do need to temper that. And so we we do our our outplants in deeper water, try and go to the 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 furthest depth of the of the of the range for those species. Um, not always possible. Mm-hmm. It depends on the uh, on the habitat that we're dealing with. If it, if it is that uh, we're going to get another bleaching event, I want to see the corals that we planted down in deeper water survive it, and that's that will really vindicate what it is that we're doing. The spawning success is fantastic, but if we have a a, a bleaching event and our corals planted deeper survive it, then that's that's where the reward really is because. The reef recovery will start from the from the corals that we've already planted there previously. 
So we're, we're really getting ahead of the game at that point. Yeah, it is a bit scary to think about the next coral bleaching event that will occur because I guess at this point we really don't know the extent of it or how it's going to impact all the work you've done. So hopefully, you know, it's not, it's not too soon or too <laughs> severe. I think what, what we've got to um, normalize is the fact that this is the modern reality. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we yeah. global emissions were cut to zero tomorrow, we're, we're, we're still going to see this for decades to come. So um, we, we know that the, nothing's going to change whatsoever unless we make drastic reductions to greenhouse gas emissions across the planet. But yeah. that alone isn't going to um, stop the changes to the, the great ecosystems of the world, including the Great Barrier Reef. Right? So there's, there, mm-hmm. there is a need to build resilience. We do it, on, we do it in the land, you know, we, and we've been doing it for decades. We've been replanting trees along riparian zones. We're doing uh, rebuilding habitats and the, the functional integrity of the environment to have habitat connectivity and, and this type of thing. We've been doing that for a very long time on the on the uh, on the land. Uh, Aboriginal people have been doing it for sixty five thousand mm-hmm. years, prior to that. but we've we've been doing it for a few decades. Yeah. Um, it's no different to doing things in the sea except it's more logistically complex um, and it's, uh, it's, it's new. Um, there's a lot of R&D expenditure thrown at it, but uh, yeah, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of desire to help the Great Barrier Reef to, to be, well, probably not to be what it could be in the future by, by having a go. And I think that's, that's what we're part of, the movement of, of having a go at... Uh, yeah, being resilient. Being resilient just means that ability to get back up after you've been knocked down. So the idea is that if it's going to be in a cycle of disturbance and recovery, then we, we help it with recovery. Uh, that's what that's what we do at a local scale. The big budget R&D is around assisted evolution, that next step. And so the, there is a, a clear nexus coming up in the next few years where that assisted evolution technology has to juxtapose with the efforts that have been done locally in the water. And so you end up, we use an army of volunteers, whereas the next step of assisted evolution starts using an army of reef restoration practitioners. And these have got to be at different mm-hmm. uh, different latitudes adjacent the Great Barrier Reef. And this is occurring. So, you know, things are lining up pretty well. It doesn't mean that we're guaranteed of success, but what it does do is means that we, we, we're guaranteed of having a, a mobilized effort to uh, try and tackle this head on. Uh, we're going to be running out of time soon, but before we end, I did want to uh, ask you the question I ask all of my guests, which is if you had one piece of advice to give to anyone who would like to help protect, you know, our coral reefs or our oceans, what would it be? I have to think about the decisions you make at the checkout. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. uh, consumption drives demand. Consumption drives production, basically. So if, if you have a think about um, the, the way you live your life, the food you eat, uh, the, the choices that you make when you when you buy something, um, we can we can ratchet down our our own carbon footprint. Um, we need obviously industry to transition to a new economy. That's actually happening. That, that's happening way faster than I think people are 
giving due recognition to, uh, possibly it's not getting a proper carriage in the media. Um, mm -hmm. But there's always something that you can do in your community, you can do in your community, in the community, in the, sorry, I keep getting phone calls, build planting trees. Um, it can be through cleaning up beaches. It can be washing your car on the lawn instead of the street. Or you can join a reef restoration foundation type organisation and, and make a, a direct difference to, you know, a coral reef in your area. But there's, there is a role for everyone to play and there are a lot more simple than people often think. It's all about the, the tyranny of small decisions. Um, we just have to be a little bit more mm -hmm. aware of every decision that we make along the way. Yeah, not everyone has to live in Cairns or be next to the reef to make an impact on the reef. Exactly right. You don't have to spend big dollars on uh, you know, electric vehicles, that sort of stuff, great if you can, but um, there are many, many small decisions that, that you can make to make a difference. I think that's very well put. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Is there any kind of parting words you'd like to share with with the audience um, or where they can find you or more information about Reef Restoration Foundation? Foremost, remain optimistic. Um, there is the, tomorrow morning the, the sun will rise and uh, we'll all smile and go about our lives. Uh, so that, that would be my, my first choice. Uh, don't throw your hands in the air. Uh, if you want to learn more about Reef Restoration Foundation, just Google us. Um, subscribe to our um, social media pages. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn. I like I like LinkedIn because uh, we we work with the business <laughs> community to keep us resourced. But uh, or just get involved in whatever area that that you live, whatever part of the world you live. Uh, just get involved. Yeah, oh, that's amazing advice, uh, Brian. Again, once again, thank you. Uh, it's always a great way to just be inspired all over again to speak to people like you who are making a difference. Good on you. Thanks, Kat. See ya. that was this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed speaking to Ryan. Always amazing to speak to people who are passionate about what they're doing and are dedicating their life to making the world a better place. So if you'd like to support Reef Restoration Foundation, make sure to check them out on social media. They have a website. You can donate there. If you happen to live in Cairns, you could potentially find out if you can volunteer, if you hold all the appropriate tickets. And of course, make sure to share this episode with your friends and family and yeah we can uh, keep growing and keep spreading the love of our ocean and of conservation and sustainability and just make it a conversation for all of us as always thank you so much to graham mose who's the mind behind the beats for ocean panking podcast i can't believe this is episode 68 we are um yeah keeping growing so thank you so much for listening for taking the time to um choose me out of all the podcasts you could have possibly listened to hope you learned something and yeah let me know what you think you can find me on diver cat on uh, instagram and all the other social medias have a wonderful day and happy bubbling